Good afternoon. So glad to have all of you here on today. We are so thankful that you decided to come and to stop by and to join us for this wonderful panel, this roundtable discussion um, sponsored by the Religion and Politics section, um, Reclaiming the Radical Revolutionary, celebrating the 10-year anniversary of Obrey Hendricks' The Politics of Jesus. My name is Andre Johnson, and I serve as Assistant Professor of Communications at the University of Memphis. I study the intersections of rhetoric, race, and religion, and the managing editor of the Rhetoric, Race, and Religion blog, and I'm currently working on a second book project on the Bishop Henry McNeil Turner, along with a digital humanities project. And again, it is indeed an honor and privilege to preside um, for this great panel. In 2006, conservative politicians and the Republican Party in general had a seemingly strong and aggressive grip on what it meant to be Christian. In short, to be Christian and a devotee of the faith, one had to be a fundamentalist and or slash a conservative. When the media wanted a Christian representative to speak on the issue, they usually would get someone who brought a conservative political ideology masking as the language of faith. As more and more pundits, politicians, preachers, and prophets promoted and proclaimed this type of Christianity, many began to believe that being Christian meant that one had to be overtly judgmental, hypocritical, unloving, and have a faith that was out of touch of reality and context. Moreover, by framing the faith conservatively, Many believe that Christianity was the sole property of conservatives, as they would remind us every time one of these five-brand prophets rained down anathemas that blamed societal ills on black and brown people, women, gays, illegals, or poor people. An understanding of Trump's rhetoric would show not only a nod to this type of religious discourse, but also framing an ideology which functions as an ideograph that became a space where folk read, spoke, and yes, even perform this type of faith. However, one book not only challenged this embedded narrative, but it also began to challenge the rhetoric and language of the faith. This book asks questions about the faith. Who was Jesus and how did this radical revolutionary become a mild-mannered savior for the status quo? This book asks tough questions about people who profess this faith. How can one who claimed to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior show, not show any concern for the poor and needy? This book also asks tough questions about our politicians. How faithful to the vision and mission of Jesus are many politicians who claim to be Christian. And indeed, this book called for all of us to re-examine our own faith walks by asking our own set of tough questions. This year marks the 10th anniversary of the publication of The Politics of Jesus, rediscovering the true revolutionary nature of Jesus' teachings and how they have been corrupted. Politics of Jesus by Aubrey Hendricks, former president of Payne Theological Seminary and now at Columbia University. Hendricks is one of the most widely known and widely read African-American biblical scholars in the United States. At its publication, it was hailed by Michael Eric Dyson as an instant classic. Cornell West called it a grand prophetic book. Jim Wallace called it a must read. 
The Center of American Progress hosted a 90-minute C-SPAN discussion on the book, and numerous forums with politics of Jesus as the focus have been held in a variety of institutions and settings. Politics of Jesus has become the most widely read and perhaps the most influential books of biblical scholarship by an African-American academic biblical scholar in decades. Many pastors and church leaders teach pub, uh, politics of Jesus in their churches. Colleges and universities, divinity schools from Ivy League on down have added it to their libraries and professors have made it required reading. The book is even taught in some high schools. Ministers and academics across the nation have attested to its influence on their work, their political worldview, and their overall understanding of the ministry of Jesus. Ten years after its publication, its readership and its influence continues to grow. And I do believe it will continue to grow, especially after this election. To commemorate and celebrate the 10-year anniversary of this book, we have an esteemed panel of activists, academics, scholars, and pastors that make up this roundtable to discuss the influential nature of this work. Participants will discuss the book's significance, impact, and contributions to both church and academy. This is how this roundtable will work. First, each panelist will have 12 minutes, and the clock is right there, to introduce themselves. Y'all know that rhetorical misdirection, and to share significance of the book. Then after that, Dr. Hendricks will offer a response, and after that, we will open it up for questions and comments from the audience. We will go in the order printed in our program booklet. So first up, Dr. Ebony Marshall Terman. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Ebony Marshall Terman, and I am Assistant Professor of Theology and African American Religion at Yale University Divinity School. I am the author of Toward a Womanist Ethic of Incarnation, Black Bodies, The Black Church and the Council of Chalcedon, and I'm currently working on my second manuscript titled Black Women's Burden, Sexism, Sacred Witness, and Transforming the Moral Life of the Black Church. I am, is this yours? Very excited and honored to be part of such a dynamic panel, charged with thinking about the continued significance of my dear friend and brother and mentor through the years, Aubrey Hendricks' groundbreaking text, The Politics of Jesus. On this occasion of its 10th anniversary, of course, there is so much <laughs> that could be said amidst the dread of this post-election nightmare and its ensuing trauma concerning the import of Hendrick's signal contribution. But I will attempt to keep my comments brief with the hopes that the discussion will allow for deeper engagement. Hendrick's begins his powerful enunciation of the revolutionary politics of Jesus with a reflection on the existential crisis that is induced by being black and Christian in the US in so doing, he opens the book by appealing to the dilemma of black childhood in ways that echo black womanish treatments of the black juvenile subject as piccaninny. He appeals to his own childhood that was haunted with attempts to reconcile a white Jesus as God in Christ is so consistently portrayed in the context of church, 
academy, society, and its popular culture that guides the moral compass and too often limited theological imaginations of so many. Hendricks begins his meditation with his own childhood dilemma of reconciling a sanitized white Jesus with what Cornell West might call the gut bucket of black life, that is, the flesh and blood realities of the black poor. Um, and he points to the reality that such existential rupture does not discriminate between poor adults, oppressed adults, and poor children. The poor, to be consistent with Hendrick's language, are not coddled by a sort of generational grace that protects them from the experience of psychic and embodied social rupture. Rather, black children, as we have seen with the visible surge of state-sanctioned and state-sponsored anti-black violence that has disproportionately targeted black youth and young adults, we know that black children very early on learn that the human geography of blackness irrevocably marks their bodies as mark, if not as bullseye. Most of us are familiar with the ways in which such crisis has been theorized through the lens of race and nation, Du Bois's an American, a Negro, as he meditated on the souls of black folk at the turn of the 20th century in direct opposition to the zenith of the presumed bestiality of people of African descent in America. For example, Charles Carroll's The Negro, A Beast, Thomas Dixon's The Leopards, Spots, and The Klansmen, which would become the birth of the nation, uh, in ways that are eerily reminiscent of just this past week's virtual attack on First Lady Michelle Obama as she was designated an ape in heels by Southern white women on social media. It seems that compelled by the urgency of the tradition of black liberation 10 years ago in his employment of liberationist biblical hermeneutics to uncover, quote, the true revolutionary nature of Jesus' teachings and how they have been corrupted, end quote. Hendricks presses the sociological edge of Du Bois' claim of that which bifurcates the spiritual striving of African America toward the explicitly theological on the one hand as he endeavors to reconcile the Christian faith of his youth with the epistemic value of black subjection and the explicitly Christological on the other as he asserts a revolutionary Jesus who is diametrically opposed to the white Christ propelled by the myth of white superiority that undergirds American Christianity and begets what womanist systematic theologian Kelly Brown Douglas would identify as the white cultural attack. His affirmation of the radical political consciousness of the Jesus who was born in the poverty of a barn, who died the public death of a slave on a cross, makes a normative claim on who God in Jesus was, who God in Jesus is, and who God in Jesus will be as those who follow in practicing his politics of mishpat, sadiqah, and chesed in the world toward the end of treating the people and their needs as holy. Such a claim that the meek and mild Jesus is merely a phantasm of the white imagination and its will to power is evocative of the early work of Jacqueline Grant, which contended that the white woman's Christ is not the black woman's Jesus but is diametrically opposed to the reality of Jesus as gospeled. It makes sense of the nonsensical fact that while uh, exit polls suggest 81% of evangelicals, folks who regularly call supposedly on the name of Jesus, could vote 
for a racist, sexist, classist, xenophobic, misogynistic, self-described sexual predator and tax evader, while 93% of black women, who based on the demographics of the black church that are disproportionately constituted by women, also know the name of Jesus, could vote otherwise. Or as the modest womanist wisdom of my grandmother might say, everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. In the politics of Jesus, Hendricks takes a stand that far too many religious and theological educators, clergy, people of faith are not willing to, are not willing to take as we massage theological erections for safe space in the classroom and non-offensive space in the pulpit. But the fact is that as the Christian knights of the Ku Klux Klan prepare to march in North Carolina next week, preceding the triumphal entry of the president-elect, the poor, especially those who have been racialized as subordinate, the poor know that safe space is but another myth deployed by the arbiters of power to neutralize truth-telling that indicts and condemns what Hendricks identifies as the politics of Baal at the heart of our nation form that continues to abide by twisted political processes like voter ID laws that echo the racist monotony of grandfather clauses and an electoral college that is born out of the degradation of black bodies who subjugated racialization has historically designated them as poor three quarters of a human. The genius of the text is thus found in its resounding no that not only does God not, excuse me, not only does Jesus not support the causes of suffering in the world, but Jesus as gospel endeavors to abolish that which instigates suffering in the world. This is precisely why Jesus could call the arbiters of power in his day, you hypocrites, you brood of vipers, and yet say to the criminal lynched on the tree beside him, the bad hombre, if you will, the thug, the immigrant Samaritan, the sexually minoritized woman at the well whose pussy had been grabbed by countless uninvited men, this is how he could say to them, this day, you will be with me. Hendricks know that in effect says yes to care and to justice and to righteousness for the poor also says without equivocation that God chooses the poor as God's own, becoming one of them even unto death. Such a claim has countless ramifications, especially in this moment of Black Lives Matter, as it is situated on the spectrum of the movement for black freedom, not only for the church and its leadership, but also for the religious and theological educator, which I'll be discussing later today. Suffice it to say for now that as we pause to reflect on the politics of Jesus, 10 years later, as this nation continues in the lurch of neoliberal logics that have open space for the peculiarity of American neo-fascism that will menace some of us and make martyrs of others. Because make no mistake about it, this is a holy war. Hendrick's work pushes us to think even more deeply than he certainly already has about the viability of the Exodus narrative and its proposed significance for the ministry of Jesus 
for the work that lies ahead, based on the interlocking logics of oppression that, for instance, American indigenous and black womanist, Latinoa and Asian liberation theologies force our guild to rigorously wrestle with. Thinkers like Robert Warrior, Dolores Williams, Tink Tinker, have provocatively surmised that the exodus did not get everybody free. What are the implications of this biblical reality? that everybody does not get free for the poor. It further begs the question, who are the poor? For as the race, gender, and economic evidence of this election has demonstrated with overwhelming clarity, the poor are not a monolithic group. And in many cases, they are positioned in opposition to poor others in ways that are reminiscent of Alexander Wahelier's meditations on the viscosity of human assemblages. Moreover, what is the usefulness of naming intersectional indices here, and how is the revolutionary Jesus situated in relationship to seemingly irreconcilable multiplicity? What does it mean that the whole damn church is guilty as hell, especially those churches that espouse a commitment to resisting injustice but whose silence or charlatan practices are the anti-Jesus? reinscribing injustice on minoritized communities. These are just some of the questions prompted by the import and significance of Hendricks, the politics of Jesus that continues, no doubt, to reverberate deeply with the current zeitgeist. All of this to say that the fact of the matter is there are powers and there are principalities. There is spiritual wickedness in high places, as Hendricks has intimated in his timeless consideration of Jesus. It will take nothing less than a revolutionary politics to awaken the spirit of insurrection that will tear this mother down. Or at least in the words of our matriarch, Sojourner Truth, turn it right side up again. No, this revolution will not be tweeted or televised. But as Hendricks has asserted, it has already been prophesied. For Jesus said, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. Thank you. I'm here today as uh, Dr. Hendricks' friend and his student. I have no other real place here. I'm neither pastor, nor prophet, nor scholar, just here. <laughs> I'm a bit still bleeding over from the last session. Brother Claude and Cornell, because we stand on a hole in part because when we should have had a rope we had a shovel. And too often we chose pride and power and brand over policy. Um, did we distinguish, this question was raised in academ academia, clearly between neo-fascism and neo-liberalism when they were face to face? Some sort of two and made no distinction and said in that blurred language, it doesn't matter who you vote for. Well, that's not this day's analysis. The 
third one was, I'll be looking at this dilemma we're in from the view of the hunter or the hunted. The hunter writes that they won, the hunted say we won, we got the most votes in the one person, one vote system. The hunted says the Citizens United was immoral, unjust, and oppressive. The hunter says the hunted says the votes suppressed or stolen from blacks determined the outcome. The hunted says boldly Hillary Clinton should be pardoned as Lincoln pardoned um, the Confederates as Carter pardoned Jefferson Davis as Ford pardoned Nixon. We should pardon Hillary Clinton and in this hemorrhaging uh, that we're now facing because this group of fascists will unleash a special prosecutor on her. We argue about her guilt or innocent for the next four years, it will bleed on all of us for years to come. This kind of stuff I get when I get into politics of Jesus. Shall we, this book for me has been transformative not just historical, because I see life and Jesus from the view of the hunted, not the hunter. I understand slave tented religion in ways I never understood it before. Following uh, Ober, you see the historical Jesus and not the hysterical Jesus. Actually had feet and coins and feet hurting, people rubbing his feet with oil because they walk without shoes across the dusty roads. Born poor, under a death warrant, augmented by who his daddy was, outdoors, had to escape town as a refugee to be salvaged. That's our story. Born under religious co-opted corruption, and Roman occupation. That's our story. Focusing on social emancipating justice rather than private piety. Not a Jesus who had a piety contest, but who had a commitment to social emancipation. A focus to me on what is, we focus so much on what is within us, not what we're within. Cornell, if you put a bat of dough on a board and you had faces of different animals on the pan, when the dough comes out of the oven, it would look just like the image it was put in. The dough is the same, but the condition that we are within shapes our situation. We're in a situation. I listened to several references to how long we've been in democracy for during the last debates. And all three references was we've been a democracy for 246 years. At best, we've been a democracy for 51 years. Um, we'd been enslaved 157 years before 
the Declaration of Independence. We lived in the slaveocracy for those first three, four to six, two and four to six years, and then under Jim Crow, in which 5,000 blacks were lynched and no one indicted. The Jesus of his history would have something to say about this. Jesus of history would tend to ignore it. It means something to him to refer to David a thousand years older and Moses two thousand years older. We can't go back four generations deep. And so Oprah says go a little deeper than the superficial and the surface. He was involved in social and political affairs, not just affairs of the temple. It's difficult to be the highest temple leader and be a change agent at the same time. The temple has been co-opted. Hard to be a tenured temple dweller and a freedom fighter. You can do it, but it sure is hard because it's designed to co-opt you from that pursuit. And there are two different pursuits. So this is a work on the work of the church, not just church work. The emphasis on emancipation, not on entertainment. No matter what your condition is, count it all joy. A real going into of the notion that it's not flesh and blood. We honor mother and father and do all the right things, sell the right stuff. But that is not what will get you for the front of the bus. And that's not why you get in the back in the first place, powers and principalities. The winner loses and the loser wins because of wickedness in high places, which has right now application. It, it, it suggests there's something amiss when the high priest of the Roman view of the world looking down, Mr. Graham, will not give a prayer to Marshall Washington. Now he's elevated and how the prophet is denigrated. He suggests that in this book. The, con the condition in which Jesus was born was much like our own. Born in occupation and escaped Egypt as a refugee. I do recall lastly, in these brief remarks, some uh, Dr. Kemp can have part of my 12 minutes. Um, Dr. King, in the last staff meeting we had, he called us, we were called late on Friday night. And we said we could not make a Saturday morning meeting. He said, but I need you there. And he got off the phone, and Ralph Abernathy picked up the phone. Said, Martin, is serious. You must come to the meeting. So we had to stop. And I was determined not to get make the meeting. So I got there and missed a 7 o'clock plane. Ralph said, well, that was a 7.30 plane. I knew you were going to miss it. So about 10 of us in the room, uh, Claude, Dr. King said, um, I've thought this week about quitting. I've been with Coretta and Ralph and Juanita and Andy and Jean all week long with migraine headache. I've thought about quitting. Maybe I've done as much as I could do in 13 years. We did win the bus boycott. We got out of Birmingham with a new piece of legislation. We got the right to vote. And my friends have turned on my classmates, my Mohouse buddies, when my minister friends would not let me come in their pulpits. I've thought maybe I've done as much as I could do. I could, maybe I could quit. I remember Andy Young saying, Doc, don't talk that way. And he said, but Andy, don't, don't say peace, peace. When there is no peace, let me express myself. The room got real silent. And he said, maybe I thought maybe if I would fast 
to the point of death while Ralph, while Stokely and Ramp and McKissick and others, we have different points of view, but we at least we're friends. They'll come to my bedside before I die and we could re regroup our unity and choose our better selves over any debates, arguments. And then he broke out and said, "Not let's take a minus and two a plus. Let's go on to Memphis and work the garbage workers, which affirms our mission known to Washington to engage in civil disobedience and maybe go to jail. Top traffic in Washington. We got the shift from killing in Vietnam to healing at home. Just maybe we should sit down and go to jail. Now that's, we love Peter, we love martyrs but not marchers. That's what the marcher was talking about. That guy was not designed to be on the, on the, on the, uh, on the um, square in Washington. I thought about quitting. Maybe I should fast to the point of death. Let's go on and not look back. And I said that taking copious notes earlier that morning, it was like Jesus saying, um, let this cup pass from me. Maybe I've done as much as I could do. Then as he prayed, disciples slept, then not my will but thine be done. Uh, from my own experience in the struggle, this year is 50 years since I worked with Dr. King 50 years ago this year and 75 a few weeks ago. There's no book that's been more meaningful to me in taking Jesus out of my pocket, following him rather than him following me, than this book. There's something about going from that childhood experience with those men on the corner who was preaching about some strange kind of Jesus different than what was being preached about in church the way he is today that touched me so deeply. I submit this book for our reading, but more than that, I submit it to us for our understanding. Good afternoon. I'm Nisha Jr. I'm an assistant professor of Hebrew Bible at Temple University in Philadelphia. I am the author of an introduction to womanist biblical interpretation published by Westminster John Knox. And my current project is called Reimagining Hagar, Blackness and Bible, under contract with Oxford University Press. Dr. Hendricks and I met, in fact, at Princeton University many moons ago. Uh, he has been a friend and colleague and someone who has encouraged me, not only as a biblical scholar, but also as a black woman biblical scholar. And I want to thank him for his continued support of me and of my work. His book, The Politics of Jesus, I don't really have comments as much as a question for all of us to discuss at this round table. I have taught at Howard University at the School of Divinity and reflecting on that experience as well as teaching at Temple, which is a public university. And my question is, why is this not common knowledge? Dr. Hendricks has done the work the book is accessible. It's written in an easy to understand style. 
The end notes are clear. It's affordable. Why is this not common knowledge? I had students who would sometimes tell me after class, you know, Doc, all this information you're teaching us about the Bible is real good, but I have no intention of using it in my church. I have no intention of sharing it with my community. They wouldn't understand, they wouldn't appreciate it, it's not for them. So really my question today is not about so much bridging the gap between the church and the academy or all of the different purposes for which we do our work for tenure, promotion, for CV purposes. I'm not even suggesting that we all need to make our work accessible. But when we do have a work such as Dr. Hendricks with the politics of Jesus, something that is easy to understand, something with copious notes, with clear examples, why is it that we are still teaching a Sunday school white Jesus? At what point, where is the disconnect between the work of biblical scholarship, the work of the academy, and the people in the pew? So my question is, again, for the roundtable conversation, why isn't this common knowledge? Thank you. Good afternoon, friends. I'm Gary Dorian. I teach at Union Seminary and Columbia University. It's a privilege for me to be on this distinguished panel, and I'm grateful for it. On May 18th and 19th in 2004, the Clergy Leadership Network for National Leadership Change held its founding conference in Cleveland. This organization was the brainchild of the Reverend Dr. Joan Brown Campbell and her associates from her years as General Secretary of the National Council of Churches. The somewhat clunky name of this outfit owed to the fact that basically it existed to provide a progressive Christian counter to the Christian right in an election year. This group was not quite the Christian left because it smacked way too much of the National Council of Churches to be that. It was not affiliated with the Democratic Party, although the whole point of it was to oppose the Republican Party and prevent four more years of George W. Bush as president. Nothing like this organization had existed during the spectacularly disastrous election of 2000. So Joan launched a lecture tour vehicle, starting with a conference in Cleveland. On Friday night, the great Dr. James Forbes gave the opening address. Half of it was a typical shimmering Forbes sermon, and the other half was a remarkably detailed analysis of the Dominion movement in Protestant fundamentalism. The next day, there were four speakers besides Joan, who presided over the whole thing. The Reverend Jesse Jackson was the headliner. He gave the most harrowing talk I have ever heard about how voter suppression works, where it was happening, and what we needed to do about it. It was excruciating 
to hear a full accounting of, about the success of recent efforts to keep African Americans from voting. Senator John Edwards was a speaker. He was about to become the vice president nominee and he was already playing it safe, except when he talked about poverty. He was eloquent about the ravages of poverty. Over the past year, I had given more than 100 speeches against the war in Iraq, so they asked me to give another one. I don't remember very much about it, but I remember vividly who spoke after me. Aubrey Hendricks walked to the podium with a note card in one hand and a Greek New Testament in the other. I had given a talk that was very political for quite a while. It got a little bit Christian in the middle, and then it veered back to politics. <laughs> Aubrey's brilliant talk was the opposite of mine. There was no prefatory banter whatsoever. He started right off with a reading of Luke 4 that put Jesus front and center. The gospel tells us what the gospel is about, he said. It's right there at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's good news for the poor, meant as a collective or class identity. The point of his ministry is to struggle for radical change, the only kind that makes a difference for the poor and oppressed. Jesus said that captives are to be released, political prisoners and people whose grinding poverty landed them in jail. Jesus advocated liberation for those oppressed by the crushing weight of empire. Don't say bruised by the empire, Elbury admonished. The Greek is way stronger than that. Jesus ended by proclaiming the year of the Lord. So the mission of Jesus is good news for the poor, struggling for radical change, freeing people from jail, opposing the oppressive empire, and land reform. Aubrey went through Micah, Amos, and Matthew 25 in similar fashion, spelling out passionately what the clergy leadership networks needed to stand upon. Mishpat, Tzedekah, Hesed. The principles of Jesus and biblical faith are justice, righteousness, and steadfast love for the hungry and hurting. With that standard in place, he reviewed the past four years of George W. Bush's presidency. It was a tour de force on everything we had just lived through. The tax cuts for the rich, the campaign against the estate tax, the punitive cuts in assistance to low-income people ranging from Medicaid to housing assistance, to school programs. On national security, he featured the incredible assertion of the Bush doctrine that there is a single sustainable model for national success that is right and true for every person in every society. That's actually a quote. The rush of books about empire was just beginning in 2004. Aubrey chastised the celebrants of American empire. He was the first person that day to use the word evil and it was in this connection. In the early going, Aubrey granted that President Bush was apparently sincere in his personal piety. So it seemed that perhaps President Bush was going to escape scrutiny in this area. But near the end, he swung back to the personal issue. George W. Bush signed 154 deaths warrants during his six years as governor of Texas. This staggering figure is an all-time record for governors. Bush averaged 15 minutes per case in considering whether to sign off on an execution. 
There was also the sheer eagerness of Bush and his officials to smash into Iraq and set off wars with no end in sight, all of it on the basis of lies and phony evidence. This indictment of the Bush presidency was so comprehensive and hard-hitting that at some point it became obvious to me that Professor Hendricks had a book coming on this subject. When you're booked deep into a subject, it shows. The book came out two years later, and the part I had heard became a little bit of chapter two and the heart of chapter six. Twelve years ago, when I first heard him, and ten years ago, when the book came out, I could only admire Aubrey Hendricks for the searing, passionate, gifted scholarship and prophetic spirit that he showed. Since then, he has become a treasured friend to me, so naturally, we talk about his next book. For a while, the next book was The Universe Bends Toward Justice, which came out in 2011. This book has two long chapters on the baleful influence of Friedrich von Hayek, Milton Friedman, and the entire supply-side school of economic policymaking. It has a chapter on the Jesus that Martin knew and a closing manifesto on practicing the politics of Jesus. So the universe bends toward justice, continues the kind of analysis that Aubrey offered in the politics of Jesus, but with a more extensive emphasis on economic policy. More recently, we've talked about the next book. I don't know if he will say I've got this right. But the book that seems to be com coming is something like The Politics of Jesus with Martin Luther King Jr. in the Jesus role. That is, Aubrey is more deeply immersed than ever in economic justice, racial justice, and anti-imperialism, but the next book will deal with economic justice and democratic socialism, racial justice and Black Lives Matter anti-imperialism, and the relevance of post-colonial criticism. All of it through the lens of the politics of Martin. The politics of Jesus has a wonderful riff on why King's March on Washington speech was way more radical than its I have a dream ending. King chastised white America for defaulting on its promises, and he decried what he called the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. I think that's a touchstone for the book that's coming. For a preview, take a look at his HuffPost articles on King and democratic socialism, in which he explicates King's radically democratic, cooperative, and anti-authoritarian concept of socialist economics. Or, closer to the moment, take a look at his blog of November 7th, recalling why King opposed Barry Goldwater in 1964. King had a history of playing it carefully in electoral politics until 1964, when he said that Barry Goldwater is just beyond the pale. There was no dealing with Goldwater. There was only the politics of resistance and opposition. Goldwater, Aubrey reminds us, was a person of integrity and humanity compared to Donald Trump. Goldwater was not a hate monger anywhere near the scale of Trump. Goldwater's lying and mendacity was nowhere near the 75 to 80 percent level of Trump. And Goldwater was not a sociopath 
like Trump. A sociopath is someone who cannot see the human experience in another human being. Trump is emotionally stunted and self-involved to the point of being devoid of empathy. When have we ever seen him show that he was personally affected by the humanity of anyone, the human condition in anyone? Now, the white lash has carried him to the White House. And who can doubt what Martin Luther King would say about that? I'm going to close with a comment about two books that are both titled The Politics of Jesus. There are two great books out there bearing this title. The other one is a classic published in 1972 by John Howard Yoder. Aubrey Hendricks and John Howard Yoder are more not alike than alike. But they are bonded by a profound insistence that the substantive norms of Christian ethics are in the gospel. Yoder said that the history of modern Christianity is a trail of reasons not to make Jesus the norm of Christian ethics. Jesus taught an ethic of love perfectionism that offers no help for solving the problems of social ethics. Reinhold Niebuhr. Or, Jesus was a simple rural figure who personalized all ethical issues. Tolstoy. Or, Jesus was indifferent to social and political issues, caring only about individual salvation. Evangelical revivalism. Or, Jesus was a radical monotheist who pointed people away from all local and finite values. H. Richard Niebuhr. Or, Jesus entered the world to die for the sins of humankind, which lifted him from the category of teacher or exemplar. Catholic and Protestant orthodoxy. Yoder blasted all these options as different ways of evading the actual norms in the gospel. Jesus is embarrassing, so we have to find a way to get around him. Yoder, very much like Obrey, described Luke 4 as the platform of Jesus' teaching and interpreted Luke 6 as a reaffirmation of the platform. Of course, things get different very soon because Yoder had nothing like Obrey's intersectional critique of white supremacism and sexism as structural features of oppression. But these, and these two scholars, of course, got different things out of the passages on discipleship and justice and the kingdom of God, the Christian community. But a deep affinity, nonetheless, remained. It's the sheer willingness to struggle with the gospel and to take seriously its claim to uphold ethical and political norms. One might say, it's the sheer audacity to do so. That's what hit me 12 years ago as Obrey began to speak. Standing in front of that crowd, armed just with a Greek New Testament. At the very end of the politics of Jesus, he said that unless George W. Bush repented and radically changed course, quote, he will be found wanting by the standard of love and care, justice and truth that Jesus declared as God's truest measure of the deeds of us all. And we, the American people who have been so painfully betrayed, must never again permit ourselves to be so grievously misled by platitudes and seeming words of faith from the message of Jesus, unquote. Well, that was last time. Now, 
we are confronting a tidal wave of white nationalism, and we must find what it means in this terrible moment to stand for justice, righteousness, and steadfast love for the hungry and hurting. Thank you, friends. Good afternoon. My name is Carrie Day. I am the Associate Professor of Theological and Social Ethics at Bright Divinity School um, te at Texas Christian University in Fort Worth, Texas. And I am elated to be reflecting on my dear friend, Brother Obrey Hendricks' text on today. So we are celebrating the 10th anniversary of Obrey Hendricks' text, The Politics of Jesus. This groundbreaking text continues to speak to our contemporary moment. And as a theological scholar whose work sits at the intersections of religion, ethics, and critical theory, I want to reflect on and celebrate his work. So instead of simply reviewing Obrey's text, I want, similar to much of the panel already, I want to reflect on the significance of his text for our current political moment. I want to focus my reflections on one of Obrey's major contributions that we find in the final chapter of this text. His claim that the politics of Jesus involves moving beyond the liberalism versus conservatism framework in how we think about the democratic imaginary and therefore possibilities for justice and beloved community. I think this claim is worth exploring because it thinks of the political as a radical imagination and fugitive practice, rather than just partisan activity from within dominant neoliberal configurations. In the age of Trump, what does a black radical fugitive imagination look like? And how does the politics of Jesus Obrey offers push us along and in fleshing this radical imaginary? There has been psychic shock with the election of Trump, which has evoked out of people exhaustion, fear, anger, distrust, even hatred, which has led to a public pessimism and for some despair in relation to envisioning any future of flourishing. Now for certain, I don't dismiss the current existential angst as it wrestles with the profound impact of white neoliberal domination upon poor black and brown bodies and therefore what is possible. In this moment, moment, many feel sheer terror in the face of unbounded structural power and inequality. And indeed, this anger and frustration point to the fact that our political and public institutions are indeed in the state of what critical theorists refer to as a legitimation crisis. However honest this position might be, perhaps what it lacks is what imagination is all about. And this is what I think Obrey is up to. Obrey invites the reader to embrace a radical democratic imaginary that he sees exemplified in the politics of Jesus. The problem of reducing our political possibilities to the liberalism versus conservatism framework is that it assumes our primary power for change principally rests in the Habermasian idea of the public square through elected and representative institutions. Now for sure these institutions are important and must be engaged and reformed. 
But marginalized populations such as black people and poor people often did not have direct access to our elected and representative institutions. And even when black folks did, these institutions refused to offer them the kind of representation to secure basic economic and cultural resources to participate on, on par with white folks in society. The point here then is that it has always been counterpublics, to use critical theorist Nancy Frazier's words, that have forced the broader dominant political space to consider the interests of the marginalized and the dispossessed in the first place. As I infer from Obrey, the Jesus movement represented a revolutionary insurgent counterpublic that desire to break out of the cycles of institutional oppression and violence generated by all current political authorities. This movement as a counterpublic issued a call to a new future that could not be captured or calculated in the dominant political configurations and, religio and religio-social arrangements. So then we must always listen deeply to counterpublics such as social movements, to know what is required in each historical moment, what is required for truly radical action that births new worlds, new ways of being, not dictated by current arrangements. In his book, Freedom Dreams, Robin Kelly reminds us that this orientation of moving beyond our political either or, beyond dominant political configurations, is not a dream state. In fact, social movements have embodied the profound importance of counterpublics imploding dominant political arrangements that generate dead ends for the oppressed in terms of liberation and flourishing. I suppose this is what Mark Lamont Hill's point was when he argued that perhaps we could afford a Trump presidency in order to regalvanize us around our values and possibilities rather than mobilize us around our, fear, our fears. And I will concede that perhaps Hill functions here as an agent provocateur. And while I take some issues with Hill's assessment that a Trump presidency is necessary to mobilize the left, Part of his point that I want to take uh, uh, to, uh, um, that I want to take seriously was that we cannot divorce critical analysis and the possibilities of a future from transformative social movements or counterpublics. In other words, it is not enough to minimize oppression and inequality from within the dominant, uh, the neoliberal dominant public sphere. We must imagine new ways of being that explode neoliberal modalities of life altogether moving us toward the facilitation of life and away from social death. The black radical imagination, the black, uh, the black radical fugitive imagination is not a thing then within dominant matrices of society, but an imagination process that enunciates a newness beyond present conditions. A philosophy of praxis as Gramsci writes about in his own prison notebooks while incarcerated underneath the Italian fascist regime in 1929. Gramsci, physically bound, but his imagination not bound. So then a black radical imagination is about how transformative movements shift our socio-political ideas and inherited categories while trying to locate and overturn unbounded, blatant, and subtle modes of domination. This is what Obrey is after, I think, in choosing this third option, 
that the politics of Jesus represents. A radical imaginary that rethinks, the, that rethinks systems, that is hegemonic systems, and cultivates new subjectivities. For Aubrey, the Jesus movement generates new categories of human existence, new subjectivities and practices that transcend tribalism, nationalisms of all stripes, and exclusionary politics. According to the politics of Jesus that Aubrey enunciates in his text, I infer that most politics perhaps aren't truly radical because they lack this courageous excess, this excess as imagination, imagination as a fugitive praxis, a practice, a third way that offers modalities outside of neoliberal ways of being. Aubrey then challenges groups to take inventory of their politics. And I can imagine through this text that it's saying it's okay if folks ain't radical, just own it. Just own that it does not align with the radical politics of Jesus. For Aubrey, the politics of Jesus as a radical, a radical imaginary must be then discovered and recuperated. To use Franz Fanon's words, the decolonizing of the mind toward a more radical imagination is a necessary practice that disorders our current colonial social order altogether. For me, most importantly, it disorders our practices and ways of thinking from within white hegemonic systems. As our ways of thinking within these dead-end systems, to use Willie Jennings' words, are, quote, trapped within the intimacy of whiteness, unquote. This radical imagination is not utopian or a matter of living in a dream state of mind because it refuses to perform within dominant configurations of whiteness. This imagination is always already being in flesh and enacted through counterpublics, otherwise worlds, through beloved communities that are witnessing to an alternate, alternative world marked by, marked by structural justice and caring, compassion, and relational modes of being. The Black Feminist Kambahi River Collective is one of the most powerful manifestos that emerges out of activism and lived practice, arguing that a society cannot be created under late capitalism, nor could the socialism alone dismantle the structures of racial, gender, and sexual domination. There was no either or for black feminist politics. They wanted a third way. The remaking of the whole was required. The struggle wasn't just the public fights in the street or the fight for representation or the fight against capitalism or the advocacy of socialism to provide public resources desperately, desperately needed by the poor. It was all of that. There was no either or with black feminist intersectional politics as none of these singular practices could remedy the state of affairs. In my estimation, Black feminist, womanist, autonomous, and indigenous movements in the Americas have best grasped living into this radical, fugitive tradition. As Angela Davis reminds us, rad ra radical literally means to get to the root of things. This is Aubrey's task, to get to the root of things regarding what Jesus truly means for us today and why and how the Jesus movement has been co-opted by white supremacist empire and black complicity within our neoliberal order. Getting to the root of things involves not only critiquing the whole of the system, but exercising a black or radical imaginary that can hold remaking the world as a real possibility. 
This remaking is not a destination, not an outcome or a product. Rather, this remaking is a process, a collective practice, an insurgent context, a journey, and ever reaching toward discovering individual and collective ways of being that are more humane so that justice and beloved community are birthed forth into this world with an anticipated hope of a world to come. Thank you. I'm Michael Dyson, follower of Jesse Jackson, student of Cornell West, brother to Eddie Gloud and Aubrey Hendricks. Um, it, is, it is really astonishing to think about what the trajectory of this particular book has been. And we read it against the context of the history and the politics that shaped its emergence and that has colored our interpretation of what it means. I think about the fact that this book was published a year after Hurricane Katrina, when there was a great deal of the use of religion to justify what had happened. And what had happened was that a lot of folk were saying that God intended this storm to beat up on people, to punish gay, lesbian, transgender, bisexual, otherwise outlaw sexualities, queer people, or that God was using the storm to tame our sense of invincibility. And so when this book emerges, not only a year after Hurricane Katrina, but in the denouement to a particular variety of the gospel of prosperity that was enormously popular for a spell and continues to resonate and echo in certain chambers, this book was especially powerful two years before the presidency of the first African-American man to occupy the Oval Office. So when you put it in that context, when you read it against that history, I think we are granted permission to interpret Aubrey Hendricks' magisterial text against the implicit backdrop of whiteness because all of the big arguments about God and the use of God and theology and God talk and the use of politics to justify it and the crystallization of the gospel of prosperity, all of that stuff is really about trying to justify, legitimate and sanctify whiteness as Americanness. And what Obrey is doing in this book is decoupling them, asking a question, getting to the root radical, he axes a question, like black people do. Because black folk ax questions. Because we want to get to the radical, to the root of the matter. Let me ax you a question. So that the vernacular articulates the theological with presumptuousness that is the verity and the virtue of preaching. 
So, so what Obrey Hendricks does is really try to ask us to think about whiteness. His book is right on time because it was before time. It was before the rise of Trump because Trump has risen already in other figures, in bits and pieces, in Goldwater, right? And I'm usually against all of these historical equivalencies that have been drawn, especially on the international stage in a global theater where fascism's assertion is predicated upon drawing a strict parallel between Hitler and the chosen person. But, uh there seem to be some striking parallels to a bunch of stuff, given this new book on, on Hitler in terms of not so much about the invective that was hurled from the center of that darkness that Hitler ostensibly represented. It is the attraction of the people to the magnificently shining horror that is revealing here. It's what the folk find magnetic and attractive. And so when Aubrey talks about making the needs of the, of the people holy, that's not simply bestowing a kind of permission to empathize with the poor, that's also challenging a notion about who the poor are to begin with and the misdeeds that can be done in the name of that empathy. And so for me, when I think about what we're dealing with now, with, with Trump, it ain't just Trump. It's what Trump is doing with other folk he's bringing in to the attorney general's office, just an avowed racist who couldn't even get a judgeship because he's calling black folk niggas and, and making racist jokes. And the national security advisor. And the attorney general along with the chief strategist. This is whiteness as innocence because it refuses to acknowledge its own complicity in the horror that's been created. They cry terror, terror, and yet the terror is from within. And what Aubrey makes us understand is that Jesus wasn't born a radical, he became a radical. Because if he's born a radical, ain't nobody got hope. You don't have the hope of following in that footstep because if you contend that Jesus at least participates however fragilely in the conception of the divinity, then already if he comes here radical, he got an upper hand that you could never enjoy. But because the existential situations of his own time and condition, the Sitzim Laban, I always like these biblical scholars because they throw a bunch of German and Latin words in. And if you look at the context within which it operates, when they look at pericopes and they look at passages and they look at broader sweeps and they look at trajectories, the reality is that Jesus became a radical in light of the suffering and oppression that he confronted on a daily basis. And it opened his mind and made him rethink his condition and the plight and predicament of his people. The, 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 the accent on people in Obrey's text is remarkably sublime and uplifting because this is also occurring when there's been a rethinking of historiography for the last 25, 30 years and doing history from the bottom up and not from the top down. He ain't got to announce that as a theological or a theoretical predicate of his own work, but it's evident on every page because he's reading that text from the bottom up. 
from the nastiness, the muck and the mire, the hopelessness, the pain, the agony, the, the lethal limits that have been arbitrarily imposed upon some and deliberately circumscribing and circumventing the, 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 the progress and the mobility of others. This book is what would happen if James Baldwin had a PhD in New Testament. And there is a kind of eloquence to this book. It has been noted about the, the beauty of its accessibility. And that's, that's, that's an important thing. Because a lot of preachers go to, to, to the schools of theology to learn this stuff so they can hide it from their people. And Aubrey tells the truth and gives the lie to those who would hide it by, by, by leaping over the theological hierarchy and granting to the people access to the truths of the text, those especially who don't have the benefit of all of those languages he had to master in order to make it plain. Jesse Jackson said something to me once. He said, if you say something I can't understand, that's a failure of your education, not mine. <laughs> and what Aubrey Hendricks has done is made it plain. As the old preachers say, put it where the goats can get it. And he's done that. Now, that doesn't mean you can't also serve filet mignon, because the goats got to eat, but so do other folk. And, and I've never been a fan of the belief that it has to be univocal and one particular trap of talking about the people and accessibility while denying the legitimacy of a certain kind of theoretical sophistication and a kind of rhetorical fluidity that is apparent here. And so I think what Aubrey Hendricks does is give us the gift of, of the possibility of interpreting these texts in light of the legitimacy of our history and our pain and our suffering. In the time in which it emerged, a year after Hurricane Katrina, when people were wondering, and this is the great question of theodicy about how you can talk about a good God in the midst of all this suffering and evil, and that's still a question today. That's why Freddie Haynes is preaching a sermon, an open letter to God. And we're looking at what Trump represents because he represents a certain kind of innocence and all white people are complicit in that innocence. All white people are implicated, it seems to me, because white people don't even exist. That's why they're implicated. James Baldwin says that whiteness is a political identity. The, 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 the allure of innocence itself is the problem. It creates whiteness. And whiteness generated within the context of American empire twins national identity, patriotic fervor, and theological and religious justifications for it so that whiteness becomes the implicit backdrop. The real religion of American white people is whiteness. Now those who are here today dissent from that. Susan Thistlethwaite and Gary Dorian and many other brilliant theological minds, they have seen whiteness as a ruse, as a construct, as a joke, as a grand blog created in the name of a divinity that intends, they contend, that is, those who adhere to whiteness, to undermine the beauty, the power, and the legitimacy of blackness. That's why Donald Trump must begin by negating the humanity of Barack Obama. And this same man, please make no mistake, is in office 
because he appealed unconsciously and sometimes often consciously to the belief of many white brothers and sisters that black folks still ain't human. And as Cornell West said in Prophesied Deliverance, the very notion of black humanity is a relatively recent invention in the modern West. That was the first cry for Black Lives Matter in 82. And now, my friends, this book is so helpful because it yields so much light upon what we're going to contest in the next four years, what that we're going to face in a, in a Donald Trump presidency where the mediocre, mendacious manifestation of whiteness for the first time for so many white brothers and sisters puts front and center the inability of that whiteness to save the nation. The claim was that this was a referendum by many white brothers and sisters who were poor. The average income of a person who voted for Trump who was white is $70,000. That ain't the poor, and the poor are not just white, but black and brown and yellow and red also. So in one sense, what this book does retroactively is to help us understand in biblical terms the prolepsis, anticipating what might come in a kind of realized eschatology. I'm trying to throw all the New Testament stuff I got <laughs> up at this. C.H. Dodd, help me out. And the beauty of what Aubrey Hendricks does is gives us a powerful poetic entree into the inner sanctum of theological, but especially biblical interpretation that gives us the belief that we can fight on for another day. And so, yes, he gave us Mishpat, Sadiqah, and Hazed, but the greatest gift he gave us, and another Hebrew word, it's Nika, please. <laughs> That's grounded in blackness that is unapologetic and that sees the Bible from the eyes of the oppressed. And now, the man, Dr. Aubrey Hendricks. Oh, man. Oh, so kind of you. Thank you. No, thank you so much for coming. Um, very appreci appreciative and uh, very much humbled. You know, some years ago, I spent a little time at uh, Muhammad Ali's uh, camp in Deer Lake, Pennsylvania. And when I left, <clears throat> he gave me a picture of him, one of his PR pictures. And he wrote on it, <clears throat> Dear Aubrey, you're not as dumb as you look. <laughs> And after the day, I'm, I tend to sort of starting to believe that now. <laughs> Maybe I'm not as dumb as I look. I'm really, thank you, Brother uh, Andre, for putting this together. I, I'd like to talk just a little bit about 
what I was thinking when I wrote this text. Uh, I was giving a lecture at churches, and I guess I had done it, yeah. Some schools, I think I'd even, yeah, I taught a course, Politics of Jesus, at Payne Theological Seminary. And I spoke at Freddie Haynes Church. I spoke at Freddie Haynes Church, and afterward, Freddie said, man, if you don't write this book, I'm going to write it. <laughs> so the very next day, I, I started writing it. Thank you. Um, my aunt, some years ago, now I guess, I don't know, 10 years ago, wrote the uh, commentary on Gospel of John for the I think fourth, third or fourth edition of the Oxford Annotated Bible. And um, I went to uh, Thanksgiving dinner with family and I was, took it with me proudly, you know, because no matter how old you get, your elders are still your elders and you relate to them pretty much the same way. And I was, you know, looking for a pat on the head, you know. And I showed to my Aunt Janie and she said, uh, oh, that's nice, but... Uh, I like Jerry Falwell's Bible better. And, you know, it, what hit me is how <clears throat> moral conservatism and political conservatism have been conflated such that if someone said that they were uh, a Christian, and most of the loudest voices were conservative, uh, then that's what defined conservatism for so many people. And I realized we needed a, a, an anal a framework that was analytic, but also prescriptive. We needed a framework of analysis to try to make sort of a, a, a difference between one and the other. Uh, and so in it, everyone, you know, it's been mentioned a few times, Mishpat, Sadaqah, and Chesed as a sort, of, a sort of a framework through which uh, to see the politics of Jesus, to see the gospel of Jesus. And, and so I wanted folks to be able to, to look at our politicians as well as our, our religious figures and to say, well, wait a minute now. They say they're Christian. But when I look at them through the prism of biblical ethics, uh, they sort of fall short. In that regard, I wanted to give a few case studies. And uh, in a very uh, objective, uh, nonpartisan way, I chose George Bush and Ronald Reagan as my case studies to show how we might, uh, how, how we can analyze our politicians and their policies uh, such that uh, my Aunt Janie would be able to understand. Uh, you know, we need, I want to give a standard by which we can just hold these folk up to the light and say, wait a minute, now you say you're so much Christian, Mr. Politician, Mr. Prosperity Preacher, um, but according to uh, the primary biblical ethics, uh, you ain't none of that. So that was very important for me uh, to be able to do that. Um, and when I wrote it, 
I had in mind some of the old sisters in my home church, uh, Calvary Baptist Church, East Orange, New Jersey. I was trying to write it for them to be able to, to, uh, to relate to it. Uh, that's so very important. Uh, because, you know, I don't know if you all knew it, but when you read the book, I was mad as hell when I wrote it. And I was angry because really at the, when I came through graduate school, it was like the only folk who really understood the Bible was supposed to be Germans. Isn't that right, brother? <laughs> and, you know, I'm not going to mention his name, but a very eminent scholar said to me, and he didn't mean any harm. He said, um, when I was a student, he said, black scholarships come along. And I think that in another 10 years, uh, we're going to have an important book by a black biblical scholar. I was mad as hell when I wrote this book. I was pushing back against all, uh, all of that. Um, and I'm just going to share a few thoughts before I, I, I sit uh, in no real order. Gary Dorian said he first heard me at that conference. I just got to say, I was sitting there, and they introduced this professor from Kalamazoo. Is that right? And when he got through, I'm like, Lord Jesus, who is this man? I mean, it was amazing. And now we end up being colleagues and, and uh, friends. So Gary, whatever you thought about me, I thought more about you. And I'm very thankful for you uh, to be here. Um, and I guess the black, I guess Jesus was using a, a radical imag imaginary. I hadn't looked at it that way. But when he speaks as a herald in Luke 4, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, he's anointing me to bring good news to the poor and down the line. I mean, you know, when they said that, it, you've, it's like it's completed. And how did it go? And, uh, it has been completed in your sight or something. It's fulfilled. Yeah, I'm a biblical scholar, and I can't remember the Bible, right? <laughs> well, it hasn't been fulfilled. So he was speaking, you know, proleptically. He was speaking with this radical imaginary, which is so important for us to use in understanding, trying to understand Jesus, because that means we have to stand with a certain kind of vision. And part of the problem with the church and so many people in the movement is that we have not evolved a vision of what of the world that we want. The world that we want to make. And so we protest and, and sometimes we do it very effectively. But to what end? That was very important to me when I when I wrote that, but I'm glad to hear that language. I'm going to use that language from now on. Jesus had the radical imaginary. He gave us Luke 4, the radical imaginary. The Lord's Prayer, radical imaginary. Um, makes it much more clear when we think in those terms. A um, couple things that I would do differently. I was very much aware when I wrote it that I wasn't I didn't really, I didn't deal, deal with gender, and I didn't deal with race. Um, I don't know that it was the right, right decision, but 10 years ago, um, if I had dealt with either of those, I couldn't have glossed it over. And I must tell, this, tell you this, I, I think I took the easy way out. 
because to talk about gender and to talk about race with regard, and specifically with regard uh, to Jesus, um, I was, right or wrong, I was worried that I couldn't get a hearing because folk would get caught up in, uh, in those particular issues. Um, but I did, when I talked about egalitarianism and the egalitarian, uh, and, and how Mishpat was egalitarian justice, I did say it was radical, uh, a relative egalitarianism, just, just relative egalitarianism because the, the woman um, is, is um, the woman is granted uh, freedom as being a general member of the the uh, of the uh, the household, the man's household. Um, if I had to to do over, I I would spend a, a, a good deal more time talking about gender. Um, I I avoided avoided race. Now I grew up in the Black Nationalist movement. I mean, you know, I was a street soldier back in the day. I had an afro so big, boy, you can <laughs> close the door, man. I my head would be caught. <laughs> So I have a racial, uh, racial consciousness, but I stayed away from race for, uh, again because I, I, I didn't want to give folk a chance. I, I didn't want to give folk an out. You know. um, would I do that now? Well, I don't know. I have to give it, I have to think about it a little bit. Another thing I want to say, Reverend Jesse Jackson talks about it. He said it. He said it last night. He says many times we talk that uh, how the politics of Jesus changed his life. And I just want to say, well, yeah, yeah, I mean, okay. But man, you changed the whole nation. So uh, I, I want to give credit where it's due. <laughs> well, anyway, those are just a few of my, my uh, my thoughts there. Uh, I was sitting listening very closely and uh, and listening and and feeling but as you can hear I'm sort of a little overwhelmed and so what I'm going to do is take my seat and maybe I can be more articulate when I answer <laughs> questions <laughs> but thank you. And again, another hand for this wonderful panel before we open for questions. And before I do that, I, I, I just want to, uh, can I do this? Can I just go back to Dr. Junior's question? Yeah, and, and, and I thought that that's a great question to, to get us started. Um, um, and the question was just general, why is this still like new or why are we still doing this with this accessible book, with this uh, available book? And I just want to open that up, if I can, to the panel, and then we can uh, open it up to the larger audience. And that's for anyone. Oh, why? I think, well, Dr. Junior, can you repeat your question? I'm biting off of you. <laughs> So again, the question was simply, why is this not taught? Why is this not preached? 
why do not more people no. know? If the book is accessible, if we have scholars who are doing this type of work, why is this still new information to so many people? Right. Mm -hmm. I'd raise it in a, a different kind of way, Cornell, when uh, Dr. King would go to a given pastor's church with Bernice Morales, a seminary friend who who knew one gospel and preached another to, to, to entertain this audience. I'll go to churches where you have Dr. King's picture in the vestibule, Malcolm X's picture in the, in the, in the, in the office, and Billy Graham's theology in the pulpit, <laughs> and James Cleveland singing. <laughs> you know, there was, there was nothing about, they would let Dr. King come to church and preach to, turn them on, it would, it, except but that, that's modern talking that talk. They would not internalize mm -hmm. the depth of it all. And there's, there are even more trained seminarians today, more PhDs, more, who know the gap between what they believe and what they talk. They, they really know theologically better. Some of the old preachers say, oh, my God, speak for you. You know, that was kind of where they were. But there are a lot of learned people now who preach an unlearned gospel. And this, this uh, book takes us back to, let's follow the real deal, in my opinion. Can I just, well, I'm a, I wasn't going to tell you all this, I'm a little embarrassed, but uh, I took some Tylenol and didn't realize it was Tylenol PM, so. <laughs> <laughs> If, wake up. If I, wake up. If I seem a little nah, slow. Man, I'm going to do that number. If I seem I a little you. slow, you, that's, that's why. Um, you know, there's a part of the problem. I, my generation of, of, of uh, biblical scholars was, uh, I'm talking faster now. My, my generation of biblical scholar was really sort of uh, maybe the first um, real major, uh, I'd say, uh, generation of black biblical scholars you know, uh, allowed into this, into this, this very private club. Uh, biblical scholarship was the last bastion, you know, of, of, of white supremacy and uh, theological education. Mm. And so um, there are still not a lot of us, but in so many of these seminaries, they're still being taught Constantinian Christianity. Mm -hmm. um, and I really think that's, that's really the, the, the main problem. Then on, then on the other hand, as Reverend Jackson was saying, there are folk who know. But like Martin Luther King said, you know, the, the church is not a, a place of entertainment. You know, monkeys for entertainment. Mm. But a lot of these churches know better, but churches have become so commodified and so commercialized that they, uh, that they offer what sells best. Right. And so we have a hard job uh, on, on our hands. I mean, I think that we, biblical, not only black biblical scholars, but biblical scholars of like mind, we really need to get together and start talking about this thing a little bit more. Because especially in the age of Trump, this is scary. And maybe we can convince the left that religion is, is, an, is an important field of contestation, of political yes. contestation. Mm -hmm. Because they don't seem to get it. 
I'm a senior fellow at the Opportunity Agenda right now, but prior to that, I went to, I, I went to a number of think tanks, and I was saying, look, you, know, you analyze a lot of stuff, but we need to look at, uh, we need to look at religion as a field of, of political analysis also, see that, how that impacts on policy and attitudes, um, and ultimately on, on the election. Nobody got it. So we have to push this thing and let it be clear that the Bible's an ancient document, but it's, it's very, it's omnipresent, in, uh, it's omnipresent here in the present. And almost everybody uses the Bible as a touchstone, even if they're atheists. Mm -hmm. And so we really, what I try to do, do and I'm gonna continue to try to do. Two, two is, Corinthians. <laughs> Make America better. Let's try to, you know, try to try to hold up the importance of biblical analysis. Ground things in the Bible if we can, because you know we will not reach the the, the right wing. We will not reach right wing uh, evangelicals with uh, with rationalism, with strong analysis. I'm not saying they're irrational. I'm saying we must speak to them according to their frame, which is the Bible. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's why uh, not many people are doing it, because we're not really speaking to their frame. Anybody else? Dr. Day. Um, and this goes back to something that, uh, Mike, you raised, um, and something I sort of hit on. Um, and that is, at least within theological education, and within white churches. I mean, it's sort of the acknowledgement that whiteness is a way to think the world, right? That whiteness proceeds by way of categorical dis distinctions. It proceeds by way of the logic of purity. So then what it means to obtain and secure difference according to the narrative of whiteness, what it means to obtain and secure difference necessarily means that in order to, um, to assert whiteness that is Christian, heterosexual, so forth, as pure, it means excluding the other, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas through the perspective of alterity, um, I can move through the world while making room for your claim to move differently. So it's thinking the relation of difference in a different way, right? And that is something I think whiteness, this is not about an ontological claim or you know, a, a phenotypical claim, this is about the way the, the literally the world and social reality is read, right? Categorically, the way it is structured, how we see our, our reality. And so I think that, um, and of course people benefit off of that identity, off of that, way of, uh, off of that way of seeing things. In terms of black communities, because I come out of uh, Pentecostal communities, in particular, we're looking at you know neo-Pentecostalism <laughs> neo right now, um, and uh, I absolutely think that you know black communities are locked inside of the moral crisis of becoming white, right? Mm. So because if we understand whiteness to be the a way to think the world, then Part of the problem with black communities theologically is the way that they have bought into a kind of white cultural narrative, mm -hmm. its categories, its, its logic of purity, mm -hmm. which necessarily leads to a violent encounter. It is about violencing and violating other that is subaltern 
religious experiences and other forms of experiences, right, that talk about what reality is. And so I think part of it is attacking at the root whiteness, the way that the world is thought. But then in terms of, of, of African-American communities and the black churches, really taking seriously that many churches and our communities by and far are locked in the moral crisis of becoming white and especially at, you know, at the cost, you know, at the cost of black women and black queer folk. Well, I think I want to just uh, say first, I um, teach at a seminary where uh, this way of hearing the gospel uh, is uh, uh, what we're about, and uh, Ann Obrey's text itself uh, is known. Um, and the text is, uh, it does what we say all the time in contexts like this, what we should be doing more of. I just came from a session th this morning where there was a great deal of talk about you know, how come, how come it doesn't get from the academy to anywhere else? Uh, this is a text that actually is a textbook on that, among other things. That is, it's, it, it's exemplary uh, about how to speak plainly, uh, about f familiar texts, about things that are uh, issues themselves that are familiar, and it's right in your face, and you never really have any question about uh, what it's about. So certainly the book was uh, worked very hard uh, at doing that kind of work. Um, because it is what it is, uh, it, it would be hard, and I think it, it has been, um, for it to get the hearing that it deserves in religious communities. Uh, for one thing, it's very political. Um, mm. you, you can't get around it. I mean, m most of the, of the text is coming right at you about quite familiar topics, but taking a <laughs> position uh, on political issues of the day and of the, and of the, the future. And in a lot of church contexts, the only way you could do it, say, in a study group or a series of the like, would be to counterpose it with something else. You know, something that just takes a very different line about what the gospel is and what, what it means in terms of the politics and society, uh, because so many pastors feel they just couldn't get away with anything else uh, than doing that. But what's so often chosen, instead of going that way, is just to say, don't do this at all. And what you end up with, especially in white churches, I mean, I think... You know, the social gospel got a much longer run in black churches than in white churches, and that, just that alone uh, makes this less of an issue in black churches than in right. white churches. But in, but in an enormous number of white churches out there, what is cultivated is a kind of innocuous church talk that isn't really about anything, uh, that's just calculated, calibrated, in order to hold together whatever religious audience you still have there. Uh, you're terrified of offending anybody because you can't afford to lose any of them. Uh, and so the, the deal is, the idea is that we, we just uh, hold this together with something that can't offend anyone. Um, you know, I'll at least make it, uh, hold this, this outfit together for, an either, for as long as I am here, the pastor. Uh, well, that's just, I, I get why people make that uh, bargain, um, but a book, a text like this just can't break through uh, when you've got that mentality at one religious community after another. You know, people with black skin who internalize that worldview become even more dangerous because you can't see them so immediately. Mm. Uh, and part of what he's saying in this, in this treatment is that Rome was sophisticated enough to, uh, to co-opt the religious order. And most of our churches fly the flag higher than the cross. 
and, and that, that is, if, if, that's internalizing the worst of the situation. I, I'm a little reluctant on two points here. I keep looking at you, kind of across of our stuff. The, we get them at the age of Trump. Trump lost. The Honda says he won. There's a point of conflict. There's a point of fight there. Another point of concession. She got the most votes, and we believe one person, one vote, or we don't. If we don't, then we fight about that. Not just assess it, move on, and can see, well, it's his age. Not quite. She got the most votes. Uh, the uh, the um, Citizens United is dropping billions of dollars. That's a point of fight, not just a point of assessment. That, that's, a, that's a point of fight. Uh, the idea of, in the end, the, the 2000 election was won, and 2016 was won because of the suppression of the black vote, who were less than a whole vote. They stopped the count in 2000. Uh, Bush was up by 537, and 27,000 black votes were not counted, and the Democrats didn't fight for the black votes either, and it was theirs to have. This past week, given what happened in Florida, North Carolina, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and in, in Michigan, the concession was early. For those who never had to fight for the right to vote, it, it didn't mean enough for them to fight for it. They're trying to look flaggy. I want to look cross. I don't like that. I don't concede this territory to, 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 uh, to Trump. Therefore, there must be fights in lack of concession. December 19th is the day the electoral cause will meet. Will they, will they ratify the winner, the loser, over the winner? We should be very aware of December 19th before the Santa Claus stuff. December 19th is the date that, that, that this makeshift private group will, is going to... Is going to and my last point would, would be this, this issue I want to take. Hillary should be pardoned. But not just Hillary pardoned. All those others who have who've served their time for their crime should not have a, a, a bullseye on their back for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. We should free them, use the occasion, the occasion of, 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 of use this moment there's a whole body of people, Michelle would argue, who, who, are, who we, we admit now shouldn't have been charged in the first place, but they were charged, and they got fellow monkeys on their back. Barack can give an Emancipation Proclamation. It's not Trump. This is still the age of Barack. He could, in fact, pardon Hillary just as Ford pardoned Nixon, and, and as Lincoln pardoned Confederates, and stop the bleeding. And there's a whole bother people, if she is freed on the basis of not even having appealed for a pardon, who paid their time, who should be set free as well. We're still in the age of, of, of Barack. Mm -hmm. I hope I'm making sense to somebody in here. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, I, I would like to think that w as we reevaluate this whole season of our, of, of our politics, one, among lessons learned, to put pride and and brand above policy is a big mistake. And Connell paid a particular price for choosing the cross over the flag. He was not alone, but it sure was lonely to choose it. And the extent to which the question was raised earlier today, what about the, the, is the institution, is the, is, the, is the academy complicit in this? Yes, the, the, the academy itself has a moral obligation if you think she should be uh, 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 pardoned, say so. 
If you think she shouldn't, say that too, but say something. And sometimes I think last said we deal in, in whole notes, either, if these are. I was walking down the street some time ago, Michelle, and, uh, and a, a root had grown up on the sidewalk, and it was up, and I tripped and fell. And I looked back and see why I had fallen. And in this, I was, I was looking someplace else and stepped over. And I looked back, and, and in this crack uh, where the sidewalks had come apart, uh, there was some grass growing. And sometime when there's a crack and there's a little, some sunshine and some rain, life just comes out anyhow. Much of our lives have been in the crack. It never been either or, black, white, total or. And I think that we should sometimes think about fighting for the crack. One reason I supported Hillary so fervently, I knew who, who, who else would, had, would have access to her. Mm-hmm. And now who does not have access to anybody? Living life in the cracks. And much of our lives, with a president born between in a split family, many of us are born that way, mm-hmm. he came out the cracks. Many of us came out the cracks of life. Mm-hmm. We never had a whole note. We came out of, out of a little grass, <laughs> a little water, a little rain, and God blessed us beyond measure. Thank you. And Dr. Terman, you want to? Let's open it. Just, just a quick thing. And after this, we'll to, open up. I just, uh, something I should have said in relation to this question. You know, one of the, the real gratifying things for me is that um, I've heard from folk all over the country these 10, these ten years. Um, and and, I, and I've, the book has reached a number of, of people. I mean, I... I know at least one or two instances where high schools have used it. Um, many churches have, have had courses in it, uh, undergraduate, graduate programs, even some PhD programs. And I mention that because um, <clears throat> my colleagues, my biblical scholarship uh, colleagues, um, we have a responsibility to fight against the biblical hegemony, the hegemony of the, of the, uh, of the, of the, uh, dominationist gaze. Um, and we can write to reach people. We just really don't often. Um, and so I think the politics of Jesus has modeled that, that that can be done. Um, and it's it's done it to some extent, but we need a whole we need to really think about it. We need to do it a whole lot more. And I want to challenge my biblical studies colleagues to write for um, you know, uh, Uncle Moe's in the, in, mm-hmm. in the pew, you know, or uh, Aunt Susie, mm-hmm. and keep them in mind as you write. Mm-hmm. All right, on that note, we, will, we, have, we do have time for questions and comments from the audience. There are two microphones, as you see, in the aisles. If you would just please go there to address your comment or question. Uh, we'll yes. start right here. Uh, my name is Peter Paris. I want to thank Aubrey so very much for this excellent book and for this, cha- this panel for the excellence in which they have responded to it. Um, I want to say a word about the importance, I think, of, of bringing race into the Bible. Mm. And uh, because the issue of the poor, uh, Jesus saying he's come to, um, uh, to proclaim good news to the poor. In a racialized situation, 
um, that has got to be broken down because the poor, the white poor, and the black poor have never in this country or in various other countries um, have uh, acknowledged common cause. And, uh, and I just want to say one word about Saul Alinsky, for instance, um, who is seen as the, the father of community organizing. He began in the 1930s by organizing the poor in the back of the yards community of Chicago and uh, thinking that this would bring about some greater justice. And after they learned the method, they then used it uh, to organize themselves to keep blacks out of their territory. And so Saul Alinsky decided to go over to Woodlawn and organize the blacks. <laughs> and then you have two organized groups of poor peoples that are sort of set in opposition to each other in order to bring about some kind of justice. Well, so that needs to be dealt with, and I, I'm, I'm asking Aubrey, do you think that that needs to be brought to bear um, on the, on, on the uh, Jesus and Jesus proclamation um, uh, when you revise the book? <laughs> thank you. Yeah, you know, um, thank you, Dr. Paris, who was one of my professors and, and uh, a shining light in my life. Thank you very much. I'm honored that you're here. Um, and I'm so honored that, uh, and then with this Excedrin PM, I'm going to ask you to uh, repeat your question. <laughs> That's Just hilarious. quickly. You can do it for me. It's fine. Oh. <laughs> Um, it's, oh, it's okay. just, did you get it? Uh, how, yeah, how the yeah. distinction between the poor. Yeah, the distinction before, between the poor oh. and how one has got to, um, in this country, in order to make it understandable, okay. one's got to say the white poor or the you. black poor or some other type of poor. You need I to have you. an adjective here. Okay. And the Bible doesn't have that. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, you know, in Luke 4, 418, he says... Uh, Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to bring good news to the poor. The question is, what is good news to the poor? Is it that uh, those who are poor now are going to, uh, uh, they're going to get, get rich, you know, like prosperity gospel? Uh, and, you know, we're not going to have a, a just pie. We just want to get more, more of the pie. You know, in order for it to be good news for everyone, it, it really uh, speaks to uh, systemic change. Uh, to bring good news to the poor says that the institutions, the relationships, the policies, the governmental structures that make people poor and keep them poor, that they are to be changed. And so I, I, I mention that because we, we, it really is important to look at the structural issues that underlie all uh, what everybody is, is, is suffering. Mm -hmm. One thing that was so wonderful about Martin Luther King is that he realized that uh, how that racism, how, how much it was in, intertwined with and in service uh, to capitalism. 
And so I think we really have to start talking in, in, in terms of political economy. We have to talk about what is egalitarianism? What is justice? Is it libertarian? Is it utilitarian? Uh, if we start speaking in those categories, I think, if we won't, and we'll see that we're all in this, in this thing together. Uh, that you know, the white poor in some ways have, have more, more advantages, but they're disadvantaged in, in very similar ways with us as well. But it's taking a structural view, which is a longer view, I think, and that will allow us uh, to see the commonalities and how we're, we're all being uh, uh, exploited and used against one another. I hope that speaks to your question. All right. Hi, Jackie Lewis here. Oh. Thank you, everyone, for an amazing, amazing panel. This question's for Ebony, but then anybody else who wants to jump in. Mel, I think you're still a millennial. Uh, but <laughs> I, I, really, I really wanted to, I think much of what we've talked about is the importance of this critical biblical work being translated into communities that, uh, that matter, particularly communities of color. So I'm thinking about Black Lives Matter activists, Ebony, and how young they are and disenchanted in many ways and how that maps onto the nunness, if you will, of millennials in general. What kind of Jesus do the young activists need and how can we deliver that Jesus to them? Hmm. You know, I would say, kind of baseline, the Jesus that they need is a revolutionary Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. it, it is the Jesus that Aubrey is presenting to us in, in his groundbreaking text. But I would want, I would say, given the fact that the progenitors of this movement are black queer women, yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. that a Jesus who is only, that, backing up to Dr. Paris's question, only reading race onto the Bible actually is, um, is reinscribing a certain kind of white supremacy that can be read as um, the construction of hierarchy, of binary hierarchy, uh, as it relates to oppression. And um, whiteness certainly is exhaustive, but whiteness um, as it relates to Christianity, Christian faith, is built on a certain kind of, Bev Harrison would say, sadomasochistic ethic that depends on the, uh, the pain of some, right, in order to approximate a certain kind of eternal pleasure, right? Mm. And so if we are not thinking in relationship to Black Lives Matter, to the varieties of social indices, right, that are always at stake, in justice movements, then a Jesus, right, who merely speaks to our racial consciousness or this idea that to become Christian, right, means a certain kind of conversion into whiteness is insufficient. It's not, it's not going to be a Jesus that actually speaks to the realities of the millennials who are self-identifying in ways that vary distinctly from um, the progenitors, the, the leaders of, for instance, the civil mm -hmm. rights movement. Do, do, so do, do, do you distinguish between the Galilean Jesus and the Constantinian Jesus as he does in this book as people seek identity? The Galilean Jesus fighting with the poor and against the guy who got co-opted by Constantine? Yes. <laughs> I'm saying, I'm saying it, it, it almost goes to the heart of this. But the poor, to, to, to Dr. Paris's question, the poor are variegated. This is what I was trying to point to in my comments, that they are variegated, and sometimes it seems that their distinctions are irreconcilable, 
right? Mm -hmm. And so we have to be able to, to speak to the diversity um, of the identities that we, are, that we want to be in conversation with. And so I think that's why, because Black Lives Matter activists, they're not unchurched, right? They sit on the spectrum of the movement for black freedom that is rooted whether or not they ascribe to a certain kind of Christological understanding yep. in, um, in the black social gospel, right? Which is emerging directly out of the origins of slave religion, mm -hmm. right? So whether or not they go to church, when we were in Ferguson um, last summer, we were in the church. The Black Lives Matter activists were in the church. It is not a non-theistic movement. It is a pantheistic, a trans-theistic movement. And mm -hmm. we have to have biblical, I'm not a biblical scholar, I'm a theologian, but we must have biblical scholarship that can speak to that trans identity of Christ. Mm. And, absolutely, and, and whiteness is not sufficient. And perhaps even Christology is not. Right, which is why, which is why contemporary, which is why in my work around Black Lives Matter, mm -hmm. I make a pneumatological move, because it is the spirit that goes where it will, right? Um, and 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 so I just think that we that we definitely need to complicate the notion of how whiteness um, functions as the as the kind of a priori as as the uh, prioritizing marker for how we understand Christ's performance as gospel, right? Mm -hmm. It is significant, but there are also other things at work if we are serious about talking to the varied identities of these millennial leaders, then we need to imagine a new kind of Jesus. But can, can I, I think that also, uh, piggybacking on what, uh, what Dr. Ebony just said, but it's the, the, the point is that white poor people have been coerced, seduced, encouraged to think about their whiteness in a way that identifies it. That's what I meant by saying whiteness as a religion. Because there's no, there's no identification with poor black people or brown people at the level of whiteness because whiteness is the payoff, what, what Du Bois called the psychic wages of whiteness. At least I'm not a Negro. And that's been sold to them uh, throughout. That's why this, this argument that this was about a referendum from poor white people if white people have been led to believe that they can never identify with the black people and brown people that they have most in common, and in a kind of uncritical deference to uh, a whiteness that says at least you can identify with us, so Trump becomes a much more salient alternative than it seems identification with other poor black and brown people. So that whiteness itself, to your point, is, is, is the very religious framework that I, that through which they began to identify themselves and therefore a, a kind of an association with other poor people is, 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 is written off limits from the very beginning. Your point about a priori, it's from the, from the get-go, mm -hmm. it's never an alternative that can be considered because their whiteness is the prior and I think the preeminent manifestation of identity. So at that level, there's no, there's no engagement with the other. So, Dr. Dyson, my question would be, um, mm -hmm. thinking intracommunally, what mm -hmm. happens when the at least I'm not a Negro mm -hmm. performs, again, intracommunally as at least I'm not a Negro woman, or at least I'm not a Negro, yeah. a queer Negro woman, right? right? right. Be because if we are not dealing with that, with how whiteness, um, in how whiteness as it performs right. as uh, constructing hierarchy um, beyond the ontological, beyond the physiological, um, is at work. We can never get Jesus right. Mm 
No, no, I, I absolutely yeah. agree. Because in one sense, it's I, I, I would think that if we would anthropologically or maybe even sociologically account for the, the kind of uh, transphobia or homophobia within black circles is because black sexuality from the very beginning was already queered. It's the pre-existence, it's the pre-existent condition of blackness is to be queered. Mm -hmm. And so now the, the gradation of queerness, now when we talk about sexuality, I'm talking about so-called normal, so-called yeah, heterosexuality right, right, right. was already queered from the very beginning. Looking at your testicles, weighing your bodies, uh, scrutinize them from an anthropological estimation. That's why uh, Mrs. Obama as an ape. So that kind of queering going on I think introduces those intraracial tensions where black people begin to turn that white gaze upon each other. Right. I would say that, that if James Baldwin talks about black people's resistance to Jewish brothers and sisters being upon, based upon their whiteness and not their Jewishness, I would say that some of the homophobia is explained by, in terms of the queering by trying to resist a certain notion that mm -hmm. the black body can be segregated in the way that whiteness demands. Mm -hmm. Let me do this. I'm gonna, we have four people standing up um, and this is good, this is good. So at least I wanna get the question out so that we can hear the question and the panel can just expound as they are led, right here. Okay. My name is Cheryl Sanders. I teach at Howard University and I pastor a church in Washington, D.C. Uh, my question uh, primarily for Dr. Hendricks, and I very much appreciate your mm -hmm. book and the impact that it's had in our community in Washington. Uh, but here's my question. Um, what things right. can biblical scholars, theologians, ethicists, people like us do other than write books to radicalize who was Uncle Mose, Aunt Jane, and their children? <laughs> and I ask that question because Many of us, I mean, we know that you can write a coloring book and they're not going to read it, okay? So how do we, the issue is how do we organize or do, have you thought about who is it? In fact, one of the questions that I'm asking my congregation and also my students at Howard, who's the leader? Is it going to be an academician? Is it going to be a preacher? Is it going to be somebody from some other sector? Who's the leader who's going to summon us to resist? The things that are, are happening in, mm -hmm. you know, who, who has that authority anymore if, it's, if, if not us? Now, I know that's a big question, and I hope it's not overloading you on your Tylenol, but could you please just talk about the radicalization of our people? Thank, uh, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Sanders. Right over here, second question. You got yeah, I, my name's Adam Clark. I'm a professor of theology at Xavier University. Uh, this is a great panel. Uh, congratulations, Overy. Ten years is a long time to have a, a relevant text. Uh, I use, I use uh, Politics of Jesus in my course. Uh, I've used it for a number of semesters, and one of the things that students really like about it that I assign are about the parables. How you have a, a, there's a traditional reading of the parable, say the vineyard parable, or the legion parable, or the Lord's Prayer, and then there's a radicalization of the, of the reading like the materiality of the Lord's Prayer that you offer, or the way Legion is talking about the exorcism out of Rome. And you do a lot of real creative readings. Um, and we've talked about that. Another thing, but the other um, um, thing that we've talked about this personally, but I want to actually 
ask you this question private. I mean, <laughs> we've talked about this privately. I want to ask you this question publicly. Is about your understanding of Paul. In the text, Paul is presented as a very uh, conservative factor, as a reactionary factor to the message of Jesus. And I want to know where you stand with that today with all the type of scholarship that's talking about Paul as this kind of anti-imperial force. Wow. All right, over here, Dr. West. Yeah, I just wanted to say this panel was magnificent. <laughs> magnificent. From the beginning to end, just high level across the board. And that has so much to do with, with Brother Aubrey writing this classic text. Brother Dyson's right about it being an instant classic. But for, for me, it was a classic because you, you're able to dig into what it means to be a follower of Jesus connected to love, honesty, integrity, decency, courage, willingness to serve, and sacrifice. And you see, that's the realities underneath the categories of whiteness and blackness in that way. So I want to want to push Brother Dyson on this in terms of reducing Trump to whiteness. And it's good to see Dyson. I haven't seen him in a while. It's good to hug you, brother. We ain't been hugging lately, but I love you no matter what. <laughs> you know I love you, though. We just we got deep disagreements on some things. But the important thing is, but but to reduce that whiteness, because Trump is fascist, and fascist has to do with domination, meanness, hatred, contempt. In the same way, under neoliberal Obama, blackness could also function as a form of blindness. So the black voices don't talk about the drones. They didn't say enough about Wall Street. They didn't say enough about class. And they didn't say enough about other issues. So that the whiteness, blackness is not to be excluded because white supremacy is an evil. It's about hatred. It's about contempt. But in the end, and this is the greatness of being a black person, and those of us who are black, who come out of a tradition of unbelievable heights of moral and spiritual excellence, Brother Dyson and I saw each other last time at the funeral of Gardner Taylor. That's as high as you can get, not just in terms of mastery of art and craft of preaching, but who he was as a person. Kind, sweet, gentle, courageous, full of integrity, but could be wrong, like any other human being. Mm -hmm. The question is, as we form this united front against neo-fascism, it's not going to be blackness against whiteness. It's going to be people who have courage, integrity, and honesty against gangsters who are neo-fascists who will treat Mexicans and Muslims and, 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 and gays and lesbians and bisexuals and transgender and so forth. So that this, this sense of Trumpness connected to whiteness, I want to push you on that, Brother mm -hmm. Dyson, mm -hmm. because I think it could be misunderstood in such a way that it could reproduce some of the blindnesses that will disenable the strength of a united front in which there will be martyrs. Mm -hmm. Some of us gonna die. Mm -hmm. That's a fact. But there will be bear, those who bear witness who will be able to carry on, but they're not gonna carry on just in the name of blackness. They're gonna have to carry on in the name of love of the poor. That's what's at the center of your text. Mm -hmm. The integrity to tell the truth. The willingness to argue, argue and acknowledge your right and wrong and so forth. So that, in that sense, I want to just tease out that dimension that's already in your magnificent text, but I think was not as highlighted in the way in which it was even given this magnificent high-quality conversation of each and every one of you all. Mm. Right. All right. Can I, I respond? Oh, right here. Oh, okay. My name is Bruce Rogers Vaughn. I teach at Vanderbilt Divinity School in Nashville. Uh, and I'm, uh, I come from poor 
white people, by the way. Um, <laughs> neither, no one on either side of my family has ever gone to college. But I don't think that's why I'm standing here at this mic. At least I don't think so. I'm mm. also kind of an analyst, so who knows. <laughs> um, I wanted to do two things. First, thank you, Dr. Hendricks, for your magnificent book. I own a personally read, underlined version of your book, edition of your book, and I've read it enough times I'm having to change colors of pens at this point. I use it for a class called uh, Pastoral Care and Global Capitalism, and I also use it when I speak to churches. Um, so thank you. Uh, the other reason I'm standing here is to offer a personal anecdote that leads to a question. And this has to do with our children who live at a really difficult time, I think, in the history of this country. Um, my two sons, Blake and Huntley, are eight years of age, and they've made the trip with me here um, for this conference. They're out playing with their mom right now. But uh, we adopted them at six days of, uh, old. They are African-American twins, boys. The morning after they woke up after the election, you know, the election was not declared who was winner till the wee hours of the night. Blake got up and said, well, who's elected president? And we said, Trump. And he immediately started sobbing. And his brother did too. And we said, what's going on? They were inconsolable until finally they asked if they were going to be removed from us. And we said, boys, where would you get this idea? And they said, well, somebody at school said that if Trump was elected, everybody with brown skin would be deported. This was particularly painful for our family because the boys being adopted increases the consciousness of the possibility of loss, I think, for them, and the, the division that is so evident in Trump's campaign between black and white is symbolized in our family. So I just wonder what we do about uh, bringing up children here are boys who've never known of a president who doesn't look like them. Mm -hmm. And now this. So I'll build the panel. So we got four questions and we got roughly about 10 minutes. <laughs> um, the first one is how do we move beyond the academy to go and to talk about um, this type of stuff with um, church folk and community folk, I believe. The second question was, um, you know, about Paul. Uh, will you change your views about Paul? I think Dr. West asked Dr. Dyson to um, move Trump, uh, a question of Trump beyond whiteness, and then how do we talk to our children? That was good. I remember all that. <laughs> These are great. You didn't have any Tylenol PM, I see. Uh, I mean, yeah. Panel on my book, and I take Tylenol PM. <laughs> <laughs> only, in, only Negroes in America. <laughs> Let me start from uh, with Adam's question um, about uh, a statement about parables, but more about Paul. If I had it to write over, I would treat Paul differently. 
I treated Paul as, uh, as yes, as sort of a, re a reactionary, um, and that in, and, and that included uh, the authentic letters of Paul. But after I read, this is after we'd argue, and and you, uh, I had not found it convincing yet. <laughs> I read Borg and Crossan's book, The First Paul, and it opened my eyes that Paul, that when we look at at Paul's letters, his authentic letters really are sort of are, are socially radical. Um, uh, the Deutero-Pauline letters are um, uh, what did he call them? Uh, conservative, essentially. And then the um, pastorals are are reactionary. So Paul, I give Paul a lot more credit now. I, I really do. I mean, he was in the midst of empire, and he. Uh, that's a whole nother discussion. We have to get into that. In terms of parables, yeah, I mean, parabolic discourse is, is uh, I mean, people use that not just to be cute, but, you know, when, uh, a couple of reasons. I mean, it means set alongside of, right? So it's to illustrate a point, but it's also when you can't come out and say the point. And, and uh, so I, I kept that in mind. So in the reading of Matthew 20, you know, you, you um, contextualize that, peasants standing around, uh, unemployed, you know, looking for uh, for work. Well, hey, man. I mean, that's what it was. It wasn't so much about who who God was and that God could make God could save those whom He wanted to and didn't want to. It's about reading in context. Cheryl, um, I'm not sure I can answer your questions other than the fact that you know there has to be a division of labor. Uh, you know, I I was a street soldier in 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 the. Uh, 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 Congress of African people. And uh, I didn't expect to, to live to 21, and, and on a few mm. occasions I almost did not. Um, but now I'm not a street soldier. I have another role, and I accept that role. You know, I'm trained for a reason. This you know, black boy from Farmville, Virginia, uh, is allowed to get an Ivy League PhD for a particular reason, and I can't squander that in the street. I mean, for me, walking in the, in, in the street. But the other thing is, um, I think it's important, uh, you know, I, I learned about or, or organic intellectuals from, from Dr. West, who was, uh, I had the pleasure of having two one-on-one -on -one seminars in, in graduate school with, and uh, I learned more from Cornell West probably than any, any single person. Um, but we also have to be you know, organic intellectuals, organic activists, to make sure we stay with the folks, mm -hmm. and you know, and 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 hear what they have to say, and and um, which teaches us how to translate, you know, what we learn into what is em empowering. But that's not everybody's role. But e but everyone has, to, to, I think, to own and claim a particular role, and carry that out unapologetically. So scholars don't have to apologize for being in the academy. Uh, we might have to apologize if that's all we're doing. <laughs> but we have to claim that. Um, we have to be in the churches. We have to be in community. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm one. I was telling Pharaoh last night that after the panel yesterday at uh, Claudette Copeland's church, I realized 
you know, I got to get back in the nuts and bolts of the church. You know, they got on my nerves, but that's where people are, <laughs> which is why I became a biblical scholar. And, and, that's, and let me be honest with you, that's why I got ordained. I needed that membership card so I could get, could get a hearing. I believe in the Lord, but I'm, you know, I wasn't looking to be a pastor. Um, the church is my site of struggle. I'm clear on that. And we all have to be clear on who we are, what we are to do, and then do it. And we hear the word courage. Well, we must have courage in this thing. Right. And we must not be afraid to fall, as painful as it is. Brother Wes, you've fallen a bunch of times and gotten back up. <laughs> Bounce back. I've fallen and I, I might still be down, but I'm getting back up. But that must be part, that must be part of it. I'm, I, you know, I'm starting to wake up here now from this other uh, thing. <laughs> Feel your help coming. Now. Feel my help coming. <laughs> my help, not my help, my hope. My, your hope. My, well, my, well. my hope, H-O-L-P-E. <laughs> Brother Bruce from Vanville, what's your last name, sir? Right. Right. Over back here. Okay, yes, sir. Thank you, sir. My 16-year-old granddaughter has to be in school at 7.30 in the morning. And so she gets up earlier than I do. And she, I woke up to a text from her. It said, Papa, he won. He won. You could feel the pathos, the pain under it. Then she said, I'm in shock and nervous. Um, all kinds of children are sobbing. Anything, any issue that would Stifle children's laughter, mm. which is really their natural response when you see them, they love to laugh. It's evil. His election, I don't care what about the theological categories, it's evil. There's a demonic dimension to it because it's, not, it's about hurting people. The demonic is is about hurting folk, and demonic can be, you know, institutionalized, structuralized, right? We have to, so, I mean, anything that, that circumscribes children's laughter, I mean, we have to hold that up as, as, as the measure of him, because children usually are excited, a new president. Well, the measure of him mm -hmm. is that children are crying to see him as president, and that's got to be horrible for us and frightening for us, and that's what we should be holding up all the time, that our children are afraid of you, so I'm opposing you, hmm. and you have, you know, you, 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 you're trying to build a police state at the very least, but I don't give a damn because I'm going to stand up for my children, mm -hmm. and I think that's one way we can be much more, more, more relevant. I hope that's helpful. Mm -hmm. All right. <clears throat> Michael? What? Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'd just like to respond to Dr. Sanders' question briefly. I have found in my own work that one of the things that helps with communicating the work, especially of biblical scholars, but also of the broader AAR, SBL, is social media. Yes. Um, I tweet a great deal. Uh, I was live tweeting earlier. I try to provide links to some of the books that scholars mentioned in their talks, um, sharing information, even snippets of books, quotes, and other types of things, because for some people they need a way in. 
So it may not be a full bibliography that they're interested in, but finding out more about a scholar, where he or she teaches, the work that he or she does, uh, is a way for some people to find entree into some of those conversations that we're having in the academy. Participating in uh, Twitter chats that various people are having, or even lurking in those conversations, and again, just providing links and information for people. Um, many people have told me that they find it very helpful. So I think social media can be a way of communicating the work that we do with others. Yeah, very briefly, because I know Brother West and I will talk about this later, but um, I, I, I don't see where you and I would disagree in terms of what I'm trying to do is provide an ethnography for how fascism manifests itself at the level of whiteness in America. It doesn't mean that it's omnicompetent. It doesn't mean that global whiteness is itself the issue. And that, say for instance, with Mussolini, fascism had to do with the trains running on time. If we do a study of the train, it doesn't mean that we're not concerned about the airplanes. It means that in that particular site, the trains are what is, is what's at stake. So when I talk about Trump and whiteness, I'm not trying to reduce the complexity and complication of his fascist impulses to whiteness. I'm saying that's how they most virulently, virulently manifest themselves in America, and the racial hierarchy has been seized. I was on a panel with uh, Derek Bell once, and he told the story about how the communists came to Harlem trying to um, recruit. And then after the black man listened to the communists, he said, now let me ask you a question. He said, what? He said, after, you, after the revolution come, you still going to be white? <laughs> so, so the reality is, is that whiteness aspires to a kind of omnicompetence. That's the whole point. The sinfulness of whiteness in this theological context is its aspiration to be God and to be ultimately and exclusively mm. providing um, a, an answer to and a response to uh, the needs of the people. So I, I, I believe that in terms of talking about Trump and whiteness, he has seized upon the rhetoric of whiteness. He has seized upon the rhetoric of racial hierarchy. And when your point about the multiracial coalition that can be generated uh, out of response to that, I absolutely agree with that. But again, as Du Bois and Baldwin talked about, the, and, and Martin Luther King Jr. in talking to his Birmingham jailer said, you got more in common with me than you got in common with the white overlords who are over all of us. So I think that at the end of the day, whiteness aspires to a kind of competence that it has to be deconstructed of, and what we have to do is to challenge that. And then let me end by saying this. You and I certainly have had our differences, but one of them is you talk love, you speak love, you, pro you project love, you, us, I'm saying collectively, you individually as well, and I'm saying that if you act unloving toward, you can be critical of Obama and neoliberalism and Hillary Clinton, but the personal assaults, the, the calumny and the invidious and individual <laughs> assault to me truncates, undermines, and distorts the very love ethic that is being put forward as the basis of judgment. That's all I was trying to say. And we can acknowledge our human frailty and fragility, and we can acknowledge that we are all, as you say, cracked vessels, but the water is spilling out because we refuse to recognize that we are all in this thing at a certain level, and we're all implicated in it. And it does no good to have the personal assault as the predicate for a prophetic articulation that undercuts the love ethic that ostensibly regulates the whole thing. But I know we'll talk about that a little later. Mm. Uh -huh. And on that note, <laughs> show some love, people of God, for this wonderful panel. Come and shake this wonderful man's hand, Dr. Aubrey Hendricks. And again, thank you for being a part of this panel. <laughs>